0: the Bain Free Radio Hour.
1: Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirarad. Today we bring you Sean C.W. Korsgaard's interview with Howard Andrew Jones about the second book in the Chronicles of Hanover, The City of Marble and Blood. Let's take a listen.
2: Welcome back to the Bain Free Radio Hour. I am your host this week, Sean C.W. Korsgaard, media and military liaison here at Bain Books. And I am once again back with Howard Andrew Jones, author of The Chronicles of Hanover. And we are here to talk about the second book in his series, The City of Marble and Blood. How are you doing today, Howard? I'm good. A little tired from the convention, but I'm good. Now, obviously you've only been a few days into the debut of book one. How you feeling so far as a newly minted and blooded Bane author?
3: Well, I love it and I love the support from the Bane community and the Bain staff. It's just been incredible. I couldn't be happier.
2: And of course, now here we are two months later, hopefully with a lot of our listeners and viewers with your first book in hand, ready to kick off the second. I mean, I have to ask, how did you get two books turned in that quickly? <laughs> well, I love this character
3: so much that when we were, when my agent and I were shopping around uh, book one, uh, I just went ahead and wrote book two. And maybe that was a crazy thing to do, but I loved the character so much, I couldn't really stop. So by, uh, by the time my favorite publisher, Bain, had chosen to take the series, I could turn over. The first draft, well I guess it was like draft one and a half, of book two.
2: And so, there they both were. So for all of our viewers and listeners at home, I'm going to read the cover flap, since we still don't have the book yet, in physical form, for The City of Marble and Blood. And Howard, afterward, tell us a bit about what they can expect from it. Sound good to you? Sounds good to me. The chronicles of Hanover continue. Sword and sorcery heroics abound. Gladiators, legionaries, scheming sorcerers, and dark gods have battered Hanover but not stopped him. The great Valani general now returns to the land of his enemies. You have some of the best cover flaps, and Bane, we have great cover flaps, don't we, listeners? Anyway... Hanavar had pledged to find the remnants of his people scattered into slavery across the whole of the peninsula. This time, he had no army to help him. His would be a stealthy war of liberation, buying the freedom of some and arranging for the escape of others, aided only by a young playwright, the daughter of a hated political rival, the tattered remnants of his old spy network, and the unlikeliest ally of all, the general who once defeated him. Arrayed against them were the mighty legions, the Sorcerous Revenants, and the wily Metellus of the Praetorian Guard, ever alert to seize advantage. To add to their troubles, someone was drawing unwanted attention to the helpless Felani slaves by murdering influential Durbans and leaving the sign of the sacred Eltier court behind their bodies. Someone who might well be Hanavar's lost daughter, who'd fought her way from captivity and was even now being hunted throughout the countryside. Worst of all, a magic attack had left Hanavar with a lingering curse that might change him forever or lead him to an early grave.
3: Yeah, Hanavar's up against it again. I mean, <laughs> he's up against it in book one, so he's up against it in book two if you thought things were gonna get easy. He's fighting behind enemy lines as usual, but now he's in
2: the heart of the empire. And that was one of these striking things, compared to the first one, which very much felt like he was at the fringes on the frontier. Here we're in the beating heart of Derva, the Rome equivalent, and you really flesh out the city and do some interesting stories with that. Well, thank you for that. I had
3: an awful lot of fun doing it. It was easy. Well, it wasn't easy, but I had so much fun it was
2: easier. Now, you also bounce back and forth between a ton of genres with this. Like, what was... You do a detective story. You do a heist story. <laughs> and what was some of your thinking behind, I guess, bouncing back and forth between all these different stories in the setting?
3: Well, from the beginning, I mean, even in book one, I wanted anytime you start a new episode of Hanvar because it really is, it's like episodes of a TV series that end in a season climax. Every time you start a new episode, I don't want you to know what you're going to get. It's like... uh Forrest Gump's famous box of chocolates, right? If every one of them was, oh no, there's a monster loose. What monster is it? Now I will hunt and kill it, which admittedly that can be fun, but I didn't want to do that route. So each story is gonna feel a little different. And so I'll, they're all sword and sorcery, but this one might have, he's investigating a mystery. This one, he's gotta arrange a heist to get funding to fund his efforts. This one's more of a escape. He's gotta arrange a complex breakout. Uh, and then of course there's, the more standard ones where there is a monster involved or some sort of super, supernatural hunter. Um, plus I just like variety and I had lots of, I have so many ideas for
2: stories to tell about Hanover, I just wanted to go do them. I have many more on their way. And you also really expand the cast in this volume. We not only get to see our favorite playwright return, but Cyprian, Hanover's rival Dervin general mm-hmm. makes a rather spectacular return to form in this volume. Yeah, you'll get to hang out
3: with him uh, a couple of times, especially, yeah, there's... You get to spend some high-quality time with him in one of the stories.
2: And you also add some nuance to the Valani survivors. Like, you have a family of collaborators come into play in this book. That's right. Um,
3: Sure, this is a heroic story. but things aren't necessarily black and white. there's um, there's various shades of gray. And what can I say? I just figured that would be an interesting complexity, and so i I dug into it. And some of them um some of them were doing it for the wrong reasons, and some of them were doing it because they didn't have much choice.
2: And yet you handle those shades of gray with you have at least a shade of some sympathy to pull on with even your most Detestable characters, which is something I've got to love.
3: <laughs> well, hopefully no one feels much sympathy for the terrible revenants who are kind of like the Gestapo or the Stasi, but other than that, yeah, I try to, I try to, uh, um, you know, I mean we even have a little sympathy for the emperor who's terrible, right? But I tried to make him so at least he's understandable. And I think that, uh, you know, we get to meet his, uh, his adopted son, who's really not that bad a guy.
2: And, of course, Hanover finds himself stumbling through collaborators, resistance cells, loyal soldiers of the empire, and those who seek to seize its methods for its own. And ever the man who finds the way to be the man everyone needs, isn't he?
0: Yeah, that's kind
3: of the point,
2: right? Yeah. He's,
3: um... uh, It's all about taking care of his people. And so he will go to any length to do that, except he's a man of honor and integrity. So there's lines he won't cross.
2: And I do want to talk about one aspect in particular, because you laid some hints in the first volume, and we get to see some exciting stuff throughout this volume, and I assume moving forward. You really play out the fouler, stranger, magical aspects. I mean, the first thing I'd like to talk about is Without spoiling too much, because this is the first story of the second book, let's talk about Hanavar's curse, and what gave you the idea of putting him under this for only the second book in the series? (laughs) Well,
3: I didn't want things to feel settled. Here he is, he's finally achieved his goal and crossed the mountains, and and he's going to move forward and see if he can't rebuild his old intelligence network. I wanted to throw an added wrinkle in there, and I don't know where the idea came from. Um, there it was, and I took it, and I ran with
2: it, and I had fun. And for those who should be picking up the book by now, you, you play with his age throughout the novel, which is one of the aspects of this curse, and that lends itself to all sorts of ways you take it. Sure. Well. <laughs>
3: I don't want to give too much away, but depending on your physical age, you're going to react differently in some situations. Uh, and yeah, that's another another challenge that uh, Hannibal has to uh, has to deal with as he as he journeys further and deeper into the
2: Durban heartland. And it plays in with him trying to contact old friends and allies alike who. And of course, his enemies, who now see Hanavar with a very different face.
3: Right, right. Uh, even though he's been cursed, he can use the curse
2: for a little bit of time as an advantage before things get stranger and stranger. And speaking of stranger and stranger, without revealing too much, the Tapestry of Worlds. I don't want to reveal too much, but. Of course, but, but I mean, I have to say, you went the. I wasn't expecting you to pull threads from Michael Moorcock. <laughs> I was thinking more, uh, it's more of
3: a riff on Kings of the Night, um, the, the famous Robert E. Howard story, where, uh, Cole joins forces with Bran McMoran. But I could see where you could, yeah, I, I probably was subtly influenced by Michael Moorcock as well. I mean, why wouldn't I be? I've read
2: almost every one of his books. And I will say, even as everybody suffers multiverse fatigue, thank you, superhero movies. <laughs> It's nice to see it show up in a work of sword and sorcery where it originated in such fine form as you play with. Sure, I mean I love
3: that. Uh, I love that Robert e. Howard just had Cull join with Bran McMorn he calls a figure forth from uh, from ancient times to help Bran McMorn, who is it's Cull, a, a, a serious character from a completely different time. But okay, that's that's
2: really nifty. And on both cases, you take what are very often in different hands, these could have been gimmicks that gutted the momentum of the novel, and instead you add layers of humanity to your characters, their quest, and how did you pull that off? <laughs> like, where did you go right? that So many other people have not.
3: I love this character. I love his journey. Uh, I love writing stories about him. Um, It's probably my favorite story in the book um, by just a few degrees. I I wanted to write a book where I was proud of every section, so don't get me wrong, but I think it's my favorite in in this particular book. So I'm glad that you responded so well. Um, I think it's probably my wife's favorite story in the volume as well. And she's, uh, she's my most important of all beta readers. So I guess I did something
2: right and hopefully other
3: readers will enjoy this
2: one too. Now, naturally, we have to ask some questions about book three <laughs> after we talk to you a little bit about Gen Con and Dragon Con. So you'll have to watch and listen to the end, our dear listeners and viewers. So we are filming this at the tail end of Gen Con 2023. Your big public debut as a Bane author. How you feeling, Howard? Well, I probably look a little tired because I've been up late.
3: Uh, My God, I was up to like two last night, catching up with Scott Lynch, who I hadn't seen in a few years because, you know, COVID. Um, But it's been like that every night. The night before that, I was uh, talking with uh, Scott and Elizabeth Baer and Matt John and uh, Jim Zub from uh, the wonderful new Conan comic. Um, The whole convention's like that. You're not always staying up late talking with cool people. Sometimes you're having lunch with cool people or going through the hallways, like, oh my god, and speaking with them. Uh, And then the panels are incredibly well-organized. I love the Writers' Symposium part of Gen Con. Uh, Seth Lindbergh and his team, and there's so many great people on this team. Uh, They really put a great thing together here. It's well-organized, it's well-attended. The readers and the fans who come here are polite and they ask wonderful questions. Um, it's one of my very favorite of all conventions. And then, of course, Writers' Symposium is kind of like a convention within a convention. There's Gen Con itself, which is amazing if you like games, or... or, cool media, or board games, role-playing games. Uh, Me, I like both of those. I'm also a huge fan of tactical games, and now I see war games starting to appear that uh, a few years ago I didn't see. It's It's just... Once you go to the exhibit hall, it's nearly impossible to see everything. And it's, it's really hard to not buy something because there's so many cool things there. It's just a wonderful time. And uh, the other nice thing is that there's so many great restaurants that surround this entire area. So we've been eating well.
2: Anyway, <laughs> you can hear me gushing, I love Gen Con. And again, I have to ask, I know one of the highlights has to have been we sold out of every single copy of Lord of a Shattered Land we brought. You had two signings and had lines at both. As far as your debut, how's that feel? Well, you know, it feels great. And uh,
3: maybe it's just me at some point I'm like waiting for the other shoe to drop. But I don't think it will now. It, it's, uh, it feels like we're off to a really good start. I'm excited about it. Uh, I'm excited about the reaction. I'm excited about the reviews. Um, that seem to continue to be rolling in. Uh, yeah, I feel like I'm in the right place with the right
2: team, and I hope that uh, I hope that the readers feel the same way about me. Well, it's certainly been a surprise throughout Gen Con. I mean, just off my memory, you had Michael Stackpole, Jim Zubb, and Scott Lynch, as you asked, talk to you about your book. You had people who just read or watched reviews come up and talk to you, people who... God bless our other Bain authors, had seen Larry or Casey talking about you. Do you feel at home here at Bain? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I felt at home since I first went
3: to uh, Fantasai. And then when I went to LibertyCon, it was incredibly clear that wasn't just a one-off feeling. It's like the Bain community and staff and my colleagues and fellow writers. uh, It's a family.
2: And... Because I don't think we had you on the show after LibertyCon. What was it like watching them cheer for those covers and for the maps your son drew? Well,
3: it was really cool when they liked the covers, but speaking as a father, when they actually oohs and ahhs swept through the audience when the map that my son drew for the book appeared on screen, that that's what
2: really got me, you know? And. You debuted The Chronicles of Hanavar. You got to talk sword and sorcery on panel and on podcast. You got to swap stories from the debut line with Jim Zub, Conan, and Hanavar at the same table. Well, that was pretty cool. That was really cool. Where's that leave you feeling about the genre and where it's going from here, especially as we're watching it now, Bane's big summer of sword and sorcery has made its statement and charged forward it feels like there's numerous
3: ways that sword and sorcery is rising in interest. Um, there's been a number of us agitating for on <laughs> my part 25 or 30 years for the genre to get more attention. And It feels like maybe people uh, are turning away from some other fantasy and remembering the good stuff of sword and sorcery. Not that there's anything wrong with these other kinds of fantasy, but for a long time it felt like sword and sorcery had been steamrolled. and we have the success of the new Conan comic, uh, Jim Zubs baby here. Uh, it just it, it outsold Spider-Man in the first issue. Spider-Man, um, and then we have the Summer of Sword and Sorcery with Bane, and then we have all of these small publishers who are getting more and more attention and traction with their projects. Uh, DMR, uh, Iron Age Media, My Own Tales from the Magician's Skull, uh, New Edge Magazine, Whetstone. Kersova, um, uh Heroic Fantasies, uh, Sword and Sorceries. My God, I could go on and on, and I'm probably forgetting some that I really like. I'm sorry, I'm tired. Um, it feels like maybe the tide is turning, and there will be more Sword and Sorcery again in the
2: marketplace, and that would be wonderful. Now, the other thing is, by the time our viewers and listeners are with you now... You will have also made your first return to Dragon Con since what year, Howard? I think I went there, so I was
3: with St. Martin's before, uh, when my first St. Martin's book, Desert of Souls, premiered. And I think that was, it was either 2010, right before it came out, it was 2011. Anyway, it's been a long time.
2: So while we can all laugh as we hear him take a guess what he can expect, what are you expecting this year? Well, I remember that the crafts were
3: astonishing, um, kind of overwhelming. It felt like the there was just a maze of fascinating things. It was impossible to even see a third of what you wanted to see because there was so much going on at once. Um, what do I expect? Well, I do expect to feel a little bit less bewildered because when I was a St. Martin's author, I was on my own. And when I arrive as a Bain writer, I know that The Bain staff and my fellow writers are going to be there helping show me around. I feel like I'm going to be a lot less um, deer in the headlines, and that's going to be great. And I also know that I'm likely to be welcomed by the Bain reader community, which is
2: also a wonderful feeling. And for that community, you're working on book three. Yeah. How close are you to finishing it? Well, I've got the rough draft done, and I'm about... uh,
3: uh, i'd say three quarters of the way through the um, through the first uh, revision pass so i fully expect by the time book two comes out in october it will definitely have been uh, turned over and'll and I'll be starting on uh, book four man is a machine i tell you well so... it's, it's easy when i love this character i mean it's still a lot of work don't get me wrong and I, i'm a I'm a bit of a perfectionist, so I revise, I revise, I revise, I read it out loud multiple times. But yeah, I I want to keep these stories coming to you. Uh, they're also sort of burning in me. I want to get them written.
2: Well, if you're ready to debut to the world, what is your working title for book three? Well, it's called Shadow of the Smoking Mountain. Ooh, and I know I've heard a little bit of the plot details, and you don't want to reveal too much. For all of the folks who, at home, one of those things we've talked about with the book, I hear one of the characters is based on a particularly char- classic character of the sword and sorcery genre.
3: Well, it might be that there's a character based on Carl Edward Wagner's cane making several appearances
2: in the book. And, if I'm recalling, he will be our Spartacus analog in this case.
3: No, no.
2: Okay, well... Yeah, there's
3: other surprises. I, didn't, I haven't shared too much of it with Sean. I, I don't like discussing the works while they're in uh, progress, but uh, there's going to be some uh, gladiator problems. Hanavar's even further south in the peninsula, and uh, he gets caught up in some... Uh, uh, this Kane analog's uh, uh, machinations and there's a Gladiator Rebellion, and um, wow, there's, there's just all sorts of things going on again is this time, because it's never gonna be easy for Hanover to get the situation solved.
2: There might even be a volcano eruption. So for all the folks who wanna follow you and make sure that they stay in touch, where can they find you? Well, uh, you can still find me at my website,
3: www.howardandrewjones.com, go figure. Uh, I'm occasionally on the platform formerly known as Twitter, at, at HowardAndrewJohn. Uh, I suppose I may still be most active on Facebook, which I believe is HowardAndrewJones.1, perhaps. Just look for the Howard Andrew Jones who's always talking about sword and sorcery,
2: and it's probably me. And for all of the Bane listeners and readers at home, have anything you'd like to tell them? No, uh,
3: I hope that you're having a wonderful summer. I hope that you found some wonderful sword and sorcery from Bane and uh, yeah, swords together.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Bane Free Radio Hour with Howard Andrew Jones. I have been your host, Sean C.W. Chorusgaard, signing off.
1: And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynne Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss.
0: Tinker called Lane from her scrapyard. He brought me a bowl. A bowl? Well, I think it's a bowl. She described it at length to Lane, who identified the gift, after some thought, as a brazier, and explained that one burned incense or charcoal in the bowl, and the legs anchored into the marble made it stable and protected whatever it was sitting on from the heat. A brazier. Well, it's certainly not what I expected, Tinker eyed her gift. I'm trying to figure out what the catch is. A click of keys came from Lane's side of the connection. Braziers are a symbolic gift. Lane read from something. Great importance is made of the wrapping of the gift, which must be extravagant, and the presentation, which must be subtle. Yes, but what does it stand for? I don't know. He just said it was traditional for the occasion. Not you, Baron. He released his anthropology paper on the elves this spring, but don't ever repeat that. The elves don't study themselves and certainly don't want us studying them either. I was never sure why we compulsively study ourselves. How else are we going to learn and grow? If the elves don't study themselves, does that mean they don't change? Possibly. We certainly haven't been able to pry any information out to indicate that they have. There was a pause, and Lane murmured softly, skimming the info in front of her. Tinker what did you talk about with Windwolf? I'm not sure. You know how it is to talk to them. It's worse than talking to you. Why? The brazier is a customary gift for what Baron only terms as delicate arrangements. I don't know what the hell that's supposed to mean. Apparently accepting the gift implies agreement to the arrangements. Tinker yelped as the only delicate arrangement that sprang to mind was sex. We didn't talk about any arrangements. At least, not that I can remember. Doesn't this Baron list anything? He says that this information was told to him in passing, and that when pressed, the elves stated that it wasn't a ritual that would occur between elf and human. Tinker made a rude sound of negation. Maybe Baron has it completely wrong. What did you talk about? Horseshoes, oil can his family. Tinker glanced in the mirror and yipped in surprise at her reflection. Tinker, what the? A triangle of blue marked where Windwolf had kissed her on her forehead. The spot wouldn't rub off, even with spit. He marked me, somehow, after I accepted. There was a long silence from Lane's side, and then, I think you should come over. Tinker and Oil Can had laid claim to an old parking garage between her loft and the scrapyard, thus convenient and inconvenient to them both. It easily held the flatbed, her hoverbike, and whatever miscellaneous vehicles they'd picked up and refurbished. Tinker went round to the first bay and coated open the door. Her honey baby waited inside, gleaming red. She'd traded a custom-built Delta model hoverbike, for a custom paint, detail, and chrome job at Cherna Oil can bitched that she was ripped off because a detail job was so simple, gold pin striping, on a redshift paint job. But hell, it was perfection. She suspected that he bitched mostly because her own custom deltas were the only serious competition she had on the race courses, and every custom job she did chipped away at her odds of winning. Oil Can's loyalty wouldn't let him bet against her, but he liked to win. Well, he'd have to get used to it. The Gamma models were being mass-produced by a machine shop on the south side, kicking back a royalty to her for the design. At the moment, she was the only one who seemed able to grasp all the physics involved to make modifications. Sooner or later, someone would be able to bend his or her mind around the whole concept and beat Tinker at her own game. It was how humans worked. She swung her leg over the saddle, thumbprinted the lock, and hit the ignition button. Ah, bliss. The rumble of a big engine between one's legs. She eased down on the throttle to activate the lift drive. Once the delta actually lifted off of the parking studs, she retracted them and walked the delta out of the garage. Once past the door sensors, she clicked the door shut. She opened up the throttle. The delta soared up and forward, the lift drive providing altitude, while the spell chain provided the actual forward torque. Simple physics. Sooner or later, someone would twig to what she'd done. Tinker set the dish of whipped cream beside her bowl of strawberries. Lane was the only person who seemed to understand the correct ratio of topping to fruit, which was three to one. Have you found out anything more about the brazier or the mark? Well, there's this. Lane put a slicky down in front of Tinker. These are photos taken during the signing of the treaty. Look closely at the elves. Tinker thumbed through the slicky's photos, dipping the strawberries into the whipped cream and idly licking it off. Despite the president's acting career, the humans looked positively dowdy next to the elfin delegation. It did not help that the humans kept to the stately solids of navy, black, and gray, while the royal party dressed in a brilliant riot of colors and sparkled with gems and gold. So vivid was the elvish beauty that it crossed the line of believability and became surreal, as if the images next to the drab humans were computer-generated art. It was a cheap slicky, so most of the photos were 2D, allowing no panning or rotation. The centerfold, however, was full 3D, and she rotated through the photo, zooming in on the faces of the elves. Four of the 30 elves wore the same style of forehead marks. All four were female. Tinker frowned. The sample size was too small to use as a base for any good conclusion, but the marks certainly seemed to be a female thing only. Put there by males? All four marks were of different colors red, black, blue, and white, and shape. As she studied the one in blue, she recognized the female as the high caste elf at the hospice, the one who had called her an oil can wood sprites. In the shadows of the parking lot, Tinker had missed the mark. What had her name been? Sparrow something or other. Tinker dipped her current strawberry for the second time and studied the blue mark on Sparrow. Was it the same mark? or just the same color. Do you have a mirror? Lane went off to her downstairs bathroom and returned with a small hand mirror. They carefully compared marks. No, they're not quite the same, Lane announced after several minutes. Tinker grunted. What do you suppose it means? I don't know, Lane said, but you seem to be in good company. This is the Royal Majesty herself and her court. They're the world leaders of Elfholm good company or not, she didn't want to be part of it. In her book, elves made colorful neighbors, but she was glad not to be one of the family. She'd seen enough of their stiff formality and casual cruelty between casts to know it would drive her nuts. Tinker started at another familiar face. This is Windwolf. Lane leaned over to check the photo. Yes, it is. Tinker realized that despite a growing awareness that Windwolf was important in the local politics, she didn't know exactly what his title was. This might be a silly question, but who exactly is Windwolf? Lord Windwolf is the Viceroy of the Western Lands. Viceroy? Before Tinker could ask what that meant, the doorbell rang. Looks like I have company, Lane said, reaching for her crutch. What am I? Sauerkraut and kielbasa, Tinker muttered. Hush, my little pierogi, Lane called back as she limped up the hallway to the front door. Tinker considered the photo of Windwolf as Lane answered her front door. Tinker had thought him stunning the few times she had seen him, but now she knew she hadn't yet seen him at his best. The creature in the photo seemed as untouchable as a god. Lane's visitor, in a deep, raspy male voice, introduced himself as the son of her fellow crew member who had died in the training exercise that crippled Lane. I don't know if you remember me at the memorial. I was about five at the time. That drew Tinker out of the kitchen. Lane stood, apparently rendered speechless by the sudden appearance. The man was in his early twenties, tall with a shock of black hair and a long sharp nose. He was in biking leathers, wore a pair of sunglasses, and had a helmet tucked under his arm. Tinker recognized him with a start. He was a motorcyclist she and Oil Can had seen nearly hit on shutdown day. I thought you might be a half-elf. He looked at her, frowning, and the frown deepened. No, I'm not, lady. You're mistaken. Tinker, Lane admonished with a single word, then turned her attention back to the man. I remember you. My, how you've grown. But children do that, I suppose. You were such a grieving little boy. I don't think I heard you say a single word that day. It was long ago. I've moved past that, he said. Riki was your name, wasn't it? He nodded. Yes, you do remember me. I was afraid that you wouldn't. Your mother spoke a lot about you before the accident. Lane indicated Tinker. This is Tinker, who is very worth knowing. Riki turned to look at Tinker. She reflected in his sunglasses. He nodded and turned back to Lane. I was hoping you could tell me about my mother. You stranded yourself on Home just for that? No, I'm going to be attending the University of Pittsburgh once fall classes start. I've got a grant from Caltech as part of my graduate studies. I showed up a little early so I'd have a chance to experience Home fully. It would be exploring an alien world, just like my mother hoped to. Lane clicked her tongue over what she certainly considered the folly of youth. Tinker had heard the sound often enough to recognize the thought behind it. Pitt is a shadow of what it was. It's barely more than a community college right now. Well, there's not much to be done about that now. You're here. The question is, what is to be done with you now? Do you have a place to stay? Money enough to last? I have the grant money. Riki tapped a breast pocket, making paper inside wrinkle loudly. It's supposed to last me six months, but I've got to make it stretch to nine. I'm hoping to find a job and a cheap place to stay. Housing shouldn't be too hard. It's summer. Just find some place that looks empty and squat, Lane said, and limped back to the kitchen. Come have something to eat and drink and we'll consider work. Ricky followed Lane, glancing around with vivid interest, pausing at the doorway of the living room to scan it fully. It's a nice place you have here. I expected something more rustic. They talk about how backward Pittsburgh has become, cut off as it is. I half expected log cabins or something. Lane laughed from the kitchen. Tinker had stayed in the foyer. She picked up her helmet and called, Lane, I'm going to go. Lane came to the kitchen doorway. You stay. Into the kitchen. Tinker put down the helmet and obediently went into the kitchen. One didn't argue with Lane when she used that voice. Why? All the positions up here on the hill are government funded. All hiring has to be written out in triplicate and approved in advance. You have more contacts than I do down in the city. Tinker winced. Lane, I'm not an employment agency. Ricky regarded Tinker with what seemed slight unease. It was hard to tell with the sunglasses. You seem too young to be anything but a high school student. Tinker stuck her tongue out at him and got smacked in the back of the head by Lane. Behave. Lane filled the tea kettle and set it onto the gas range. Tinker is much more than she seems. She's probably the most intelligent person in Pittsburgh. Now, if she could learn a bit of common sense and get a more rounded education... Lane, Tinker growled, I don't want to beat that horse right now. Then be nice to my guest, offer him a job. I doubt if he wants to do demo work at the yard, Tinker said. He certainly doesn't know anything about magic, and it's nearly as unlikely that he knows anything about quantum physics. I've got a master's degree in quantum physics, Riki said. Eat crow, little girl, Lane cried, laughing at the look on Tinker's face. Riki startled at Lane's reaction. You're kidding, Tinker said. I'm going to do my doctorate on the quantum nature of magic. No one has done research on magic in its natural state. That's why I'm studying at Pitt. If you want to learn about magic, you need to work with Tinker. She's the expert. No, I'm not. Elves are. True, true, their whole society seems to be based on the ability to cast spells. Lane laughed, putting out cups. But that does him no good, not as closed-mouthed as they are. What do you mean, anyone can cast spells? Lane looked at her with surprise. Tulu has never explained why the nobles rule over the other castes. I'm never sure when Tulu is telling me the truth, Tinker said, She's told me that nobles can feel ley lines and can cast certain spells with gestures and words instead of written patterns, which might be true. Certainly the spoken component of spells is merely setting up certain subtle resonance frequencies. I'm not sure about the hand gestures. Written spells follow a logic system similar to the and or gates of computer circuitry, creating paths for energy to follow toward a desired effect. The only way I could see it working was if somehow the noble's body replaces the circuitry. She fell silent, thinking of energy following fingertips while the hands moved through the pattern of a spell. The ability to feel ley lines could result by simple bioengineering an organ like the inner ear that was sensitive to magic. How would you manipulate magic with your hands? She looked at her own oil-stained hands the left one with its new patchwork of pink scars. With what she knew of biology, it was unlikely that they fitted new organs into their fingertips, unless it was on the tip of the bone, or perhaps their fingernails. She flexed her fingers, as if typing. She supposed fingernails would work, although if one could engineer it so each finger bone had a separate function, then each finger could perform three functions instead of just the one. Tinker! "'Tinker!' Lane interrupted her thought process. "'It might work that way,' Tinker conceded. She added, "'Tulu also tells me stories about elves making gems or frogs falling out of people's mouths when they talk. And unless you have an n-dimensional space filled with frogs, it couldn't work. Besides, what would the frogs eat? How would you deal with the heat they generated packed together like that? I suppose you could use that energy to move a frog into our dimension.' A smile spread across Riki's face. I like how your mind works. That startled Tinker into silence. No one had ever said that to her. If you hire him, Lane said, pouring tea out, every minute he frees up you will have for fiddling around with your inventions. Tinker opened her mouth and shut it on a protest. She remembered the condition of the offices her workshop still on the back of the flatbed and thoroughly splattered with blood. Suddenly, the idea of having help and thus more time was seductive, and Lane knew it. That's not playing fair. I don't like wasting time. Tinker frowned. The words sucker for strays on her forehead were coming into play. Well, I could offer part-time at minimum wage, but nothing more than that. Tulu might have some work. He looked at her for a minute and finally said, I don't know if this is rude. I don't know elf customs. But what's the mark for? Speaking of casting spells with just a gesture, Tinker rubbed at her forehead, wondering how exactly Windwolf had marked her. I don't know. We were just trying to figure that out. Lane looked troubled. That worries me. Why don't you see Maynard about that? You should find out why Lord Windwolf marked you. The Viceroy, Riki asked. Tinker got up, annoyed that this newcomer knew more about Windwolf than she did. Look, if you want the job, show up at my scrapyard tomorrow morning. Lane can tell you how to get there, and I'll need to see your papers. I'm not getting into trouble with the EIA for hiring an illegal immigrant. Lane gave her a look of disapproval, but Tinker clumped out. She'd had enough motherly scolding for the day.
1: That was another installment in Wynne Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judgowitz and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week in the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.